You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 13. Echoes and Reverberations. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Joshua, the phantom podcaster Madison. And I'm Ryan Connell, the kookiest co-host in the West. Man, giving ourselves nicknames was the best idea. I don't know why we haven't done it earlier. Yeah, I would just, <laughs> just, it's great. Yeah. We've got a lot of great stuff in the show today. We have a short fiction piece by Amanda E.K. and a conversation and some music by composer Nathan Hall. So let's just go ahead and get straight into it. Yeah, Josh had the opportunity to sit down with Nathan Hall. I was there, but I didn't really do much. Uh, to talk about his unique process and his upcoming projects. So I just did a piece in grain silos in Buffalo. And it was using the space of the silo, which had this crazy reverb in it, like 10 to 12 seconds long. You could clap, and then you'd just hear this echo forever. And I just had three voices, and I used these simple little children's instruments called whirly tubes. And you spin them around, and they make four pitches. I just had some really simple chords and I laid it out in some sheet music and had me and my friends sing them. But then adding these whirly tubes and adding the space itself was more than what those chords are just on the page. So the effect had this kind of transcendent quality in a weird way that everyone who was in that silo was like sort of sucked into the moment and they were like absorbed in this sound. Even if they weren't doing something or participating, they, they kind of felt it all around them. And I think that's really different than just watching a concert that's in a recital and you're the audience and you're separated by this platform and you can't really know the performers or what they're thinking. You get like immersed in it more. I'm Nathan Hall and I'm a composer and artist. I think a lot of people are interested in music, but to go into composition or, you know, be say like a professional violinist or cellist, you have to have this strange attraction to music that you can't see yourself really doing anything else. I started playing piano when I was a kid, but then I started writing music when I was a teenager, and that just kind of kept going. I practiced piano and it was fine, and then I did my undergrad in music and got the sort of general 
foundations of music and that was fine but I just kept writing music the whole time and feeling like this is the most rewarding thing that I've done when I wrote a piece of music and have someone play it or envision this thing in my head and then you get it out into the world it was like the most fulfilling thing I think I've done for myself different than just playing a concert of someone else's music which is nice and fun and I've you know love doing that but there's something about the creation of new music that it's like fuel for me I still write some very traditional classical pieces where there's just a performer or performers on stage recital hall setting it's wonderful and I love those works but I'm really I've always been interested in applying music to other things basically so getting music to be the tool that helps people talk about other things like science and history and the space that we're in and architecture and the landscape and environments and I want to use music that kind of connects those outside things that might be harder to use in a performance or something um, which sounds kind of abstract but usually I, I have an idea for a piece and then I envision what kind of space it might be in and what I want to talk about and then I kind of write it out on paper almost like one of those spiderweb sketch pad type things where you draw the little circle of the center and then everything spirals out from there and connected lines of themes and material and then from there I actually see how I can do it. So for a more traditional piece I had a request to make a string orchestra piece that was about climate change. So I talked to a climatologist about what are some things about weather and climate and data that seem kind of musical. So we got these graphs of weather patterns and we got um, ice flow and we got temperature rising. So I plotted those graphs out in music notation to say, okay, the temperature rises this much. Maybe the pitches of the notes are going to rise this much. The ice melts really slowly, so maybe the tempo of the piece decreases really slowly. So that was kind of the inspiration of the foundation of the piece, and then I can then tweak it a little bit to have artistic license so that it sounds like a fully-fledged work. I'm, I am obsessed with Iceland, I'll be the first to admit. It probably started in high school when I was given a CD of Björk's music, of course, that she's like the inroad to Iceland. But then the more I would look into it, I would look up articles about the landscape and the culture, the people, the history of the Vikings and the sagas, just really fascinated by this small island nation that's quite old but it's also very geologically active so there's this strange element of risk 
that's always happening. Like a volcano could explode at any time, or a glacier could melt at any time, or the weather is very unpredictable and there's not very many people and plants don't grow very well. And there's something kind of extreme and exciting about it. I visited once as a tourist and then of course was hooked. So I applied for a Fulbright and I got it to Iceland. So I lived there for a year and there I met a ton of those musicians and artists that I'd looked up before and then met of course many more, traveled around the country, wrote music, sang in a choir. And I think the thing that that gets me most about Iceland is that their idea of being a musician or being an artist is totally legitimate. Whereas in America, you get this sense of if you're an artist, you probably have this other day job that you need something else to support your creative work. Or maybe even that if you're an artist or a musician, that that's your hobby or your side project or something that you know really well, but it's not like the thing that you exist to do. And then in Iceland, it was the opposite. It was every time I said that I was a composer, nobody would bat an eye. It was just like, oh, well, you know, have I heard anything of yours? Or where have you played? Or like, have you met so-and-so in Iceland who's also a composer? And it was a totally legitimate life and career and aspiration. So I, I really felt like, oh, this feels kind of like home where people really value what I do. And no matter what I did, like it wasn't weird enough. You know, I do stuff in, in the States and it's pretty weird for people. I whirl around these tubes and I like play these handbells and I go up in elevators and sing from the top of buildings and stuff like that. And then in Iceland, it was like, oh yeah, we've done that. I mean, what else can you give us? So it really felt like, oh, this is like, these are my people. It's, it's really funny trying to tell people what my music sounds like or what my work sounds like because to me it sounds very different from one another. I have electronic soundscapes and clarinet solos and songs and string quartets and piano and bondage piece and the piece that sounds like a roller coaster. And But I think there are some unifying things about it I always like to say that my music has an element of being accessible. There's something that you can latch onto that's not so out there that you want to like cover your ears and run away. Like a catchy rhythm or a melody that you can kind of hum later or some beautiful chords or something that you can sink your teeth into a little bit or at least that it gets you excited. And then in kind of a more abstract way, I think there's also an emotional quality to it. Something that makes you feel something, whether it's joy or maybe melancholy or sadness or nostalgia. So then we get into more like experimental performative pieces and installations and these audience participation pieces 
I think there's something where I love creating the bedrock of the piece and then other things come together on top of it that are more than the sum of its parts. The MCA recording of that piece on the whole room is like the first piece that I ever got with the audience really doing something that sounds good. And I was also really nervous about that piece. I'm just literally giving people one sheet of paper that has some squiggly lines on it that just says like, papers rustling, and then chords, ah, 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 and then a line that goes to like whirly tubes, and that's all it had on it. So you like rub your hands on this sheet of paper and it sounds kind of like a sandpaper feeling, but you can get louder and softer and you can get like more active and more quiet. And then I can kind of conduct the audience to make those gestures like louder and softer pretty easily. It's like raise your hands up is louder and down is quieter. And then we grabbed the people who wanted to play the whirly tubes and we demoed that. And then I practiced the chords that they were going to sing, which was just two simple chords. And then we kind of put everything together. I thought that we would need a rehearsal to sort of string it all together, but it actually worked really well that the rehearsal was the performance and people kind of just got it. And then I'd love to add like a couple surprise elements. So I had a soprano sing up in the first floor down into the whole room as kind of like choir of angels. And in musical words, it's antiphonal. So we have like the trumpets in the back of the church or something is antiphonal trumpets. So she was our antiphonal soprano. And then her voice kind of did this improv thing that went along with all the notes that the people were singing. So then all together that kind of added to this whole composition that went from rustling to these sci-fi-esque tones to people singing and then you add the soprano and then it's and then it's over before it before you know it. And then at the end, it was like I had played a rock show. You could imagine that there was almost this like standing ovation kind of quality. And I was like, okay, that's too much. This piece is, it feels like a sketch to me. It didn't feel like a, like it should have been this big moment. But for, I think for people, it felt like this big moment. And I was just totally like humbled and amazed by that. And so now I'm like, oh, this piece was really successful. And I'm going to add this to the list and then, you know, kind of grow from that. I had this performance two summers ago where I did a piece for 437 singers. It was all of Colorado's LGBT choirs together. And they sung on the balconies of the parking garage at the Denver Center for Performing Arts. And I was across the hall on a balcony so that everyone could see me. So there, all the singers are lined up on these like four parking garage levels facing out and I was so I mean I was sweating 
so badly because I had to conduct this piece that I also wrote and there were movements involved and there's trumpets and there's handbells and there's streamers and there's something like 7,000 people who came to see those performances. I was so nervous. And then they went so well and I felt like this weird high afterward that I must imagine, I imagine that rock stars feel that and that's what kind of propels them to do like stadium shows and those big kind of theatrical things like it's this endorphin rush that when it goes well even probably if it goes badly like it's still your brain is working like to its best and I remember the day after I was depressed because then after this amazing performance you know people were giving me hugs I was feeling like, oh my god, I got to give back to this community, my community. I felt like we were all in this together, we're like inclusive, and it was about love. And and then the day after, I had to do laundry. I felt so depressed, I was cranky, I, I was like scolding people, I was really irritable. And then I realized, oh, I'm having like the withdrawal from this great moment where I have to also lead a normal life. So now I'm, I realize like that might happen in my life and I have to be more conscious of that. If there are good performances, I still have to do the laundry and I still have to, you know, manage my mood and my well-being and, you know, moderation is key. Nathan Hall is a composer and artist based in Denver. He's a former Fulbright Fellow to Iceland and has a doctorate in music composition from CU Boulder. He uses music as a tool to explore other fields like science, history, nature, fine art, and sexuality. His works have been performed and exhibited around the world, and he's been the recipient of several artist residencies. His Kickstarter is called Reading the Landscape, and you can find a link for that in our show description. And because we liked it so much, here is Nathan Hall's performance from that grain silo that you heard at the beginning of the piece. We recommend that you listen to this with headphones if you aren't already.
Up next, we've got a splendid little story by Amanda E.K., but first, Denver Orbit is comprised entirely by people like you. It's your writings, music, comedy, and stories that help make the show great. So drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com. We're even willing to help produce and flesh out your ideas. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram, and would like it if you liked us on Facebook and Instagram, that is. I mean, we want you to like us in general, but we enjoy it when we can quantify your affection. And now, Animated Ethereal Worker Bees by Amanda E.K. An outdoor conveyor belt churns on creaking, rusted hinges in front of a crumbled and smoke-stained factory. There's no foreman, no workers flanking the tired belt that runs unpowered, purposeless in its lack of production. I stand close to Mark and stare at the building, questioning our decision to come here tonight. He assures me it'll be worth it. Hatfield has been at the top of our list for months. Between his taste for the macabre and my fixation with fucking in unlikely places, this is the perfect setting to amp our excitement. A decades-old condemned factory, non-operational after the fire that killed 18 employees in the early 70s. Mark beckons and I join him in front of a half-boarded opening, doors missing and showing signs of prior intruders. We climb through a gap in the rotted wood into a high-ceilinged room shot through with moonlight, spotlighting scenes of spiders and beetles acting out their lives on incongruous props, metal shrubs sprouting levers and buttons and vats brimming with opaque, stagnant liquids. I duck in time to avoid a barbed hook swinging from a pipe. I say we should keep looking. This room isn't doing it for me. We walk along a cluttered corridor, Mark's flashlight bouncing over an industrial-themed obstacle course of debris. Heat surges through both of us. I take his hand and cup it over my left breast. The light wavers and he presses me against the wall. We tease and advance deeper into our abandoned funhouse, our bodies rising with need and the expectation of fright. A moan echoes through the corridor. Mark pulls away and pulls me along, saying... Let's see who it is. I love his sense of adventure and hate it at the same time. He howls ghost-like and walks with heavy footfalls. He always has to have the first laugh. We hear the moan again, but this time closer. I tell Mark to turn on the light, but he shushes me. There's a deep undercurrent hum rising with the moan like an imminent swarm of terror. Any remnants of my libido are vanished, replaced by a sick intuition. I blink in attempts to focus on Mark's expression, on anything to read how he's feeling right now. Trance-like, he tugs me through a doorway where flickering lights reveal an eerie antechamber. Welcome, says a stout, rosy-cheeked man with outdated glasses and hairstyle. The man stands behind a dust-covered metal reception desk, beaming despite the underlying stench of burning flesh. Mark greets him like an old friend, shaking hands and sharing nods. I look around the room and see a thick metal door fitted with a head-sized window at eye level. Its glass is blackened by smoke, but I can make out several blurred figures moving through the gray mist on the other side. I start to cry, frozen to the spot, frozen to my boyfriend's frozen hand. The man ignores my outburst and points to a panel next to the door. Remember the code? He asks Mark. Without a word, Mark approaches the panel and punches a six-digit code. The door clicks. 
I tug at Mark's too cold hand, beg him to take me home, but he stares ahead, his eyes glazed over with blind fascination. The fog dissolves and before us stands a group of dust-covered men, animated ethereal worker bees wearing wolf-gray jumpsuits, their faces a burnt orange from layers of caked dust. They bend and shift in rhythm, acting out life's last ritual, grunting under the guise of strenuous labor. Mark steps forward, his orange-dusted body obscured against the background of monochrome men. He's now dressed the same as them. I'm shaking. I can't stop. I tell my legs to move, to turn and run and escape this twisted play. I implore Mark with my eyes, hoping to find something salvageable to connect with, but he's gone, taken up with the cue of men toiling in death as they did in life. And in that moment, I realize he and I have never truly been one. Amanda is the editor-in-chief of Suspect Press, a short fiction writer and educator. She's a member of the Knife Brothers Writing Group, a small collective of short fiction writers. And you can find her work in Suspect Press, Birdie, and at ubiquites.wordpress.com, which we will link to in the show description. And she wants to invite you, yes, you, to the Suspect Press Winter Issue Release Party on Saturday, January 27th at Deer Pile. And that's going to do it for this week. Denver Orbit is written and produced by Josh Madison and Ryan Connell with editing and sound design by Josh Madison. That's me right here. That's me. Make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast app you like. And we'll be back in two weeks. All right, where the hell were we? Uh, and now. And now, Amanda E.K. with her story, Animated Worker Ethereal Bees. No, Animated Ethereal Worker Bees. Dun, 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 dun. No, that was my real take. Why, do you, why are you looking at me like that? I know, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I was just hoping that it would keep going. <laughs> was my, I was like, is that it? Is that it? Are you trumpeting? I was hoping that there would be like eight minutes of trumpeting, like fanfare. Or I would read the story in that voice. Da 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 da